Thank you very much for that, ladies. It's interesting, the statement that uh, she made. Lord, don't you care about me? I'm trying to serve you. Lord, you're missing something. It's interesting, and this is actually a segue into our message here this morning, how many times you'll see the people of God make some really dumb statements. And what it proves is they don't know who Jesus is. Think about uh, Peter. When Jesus is there telling him, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to save you. And Peter says, no, no, be it far from you, Lord. And the Lord has to rebuke him. You're, you're, you're from a different spirit. You're, the devil's speaking through you. When they're in the boat there and the sea is crashing in and Jesus is asleep and the men run to him and they say, Lord, carest thou not that we perish? I can think if I was Jesus, I'd have made a look at them and think, do you know who I am? Of course I care that you perish. When the disciples said, Lord, we don't like the preaching of those guys, let's, let's call uh, fire down from heaven and, let, and let's kill them. And the Lord says, you don't know what spirit you're from. Anytime you see someone making a strange statement, it's because it reveals they don't know something about Jesus. This morning is in a bit of an unusual morning. Pastor was not planning on having me preach. I was not planning on preaching it. The Lord seems to have ordained this, and the Lord has given me a message, I believe, for this church. And the question for us this morning is, do you know who God is? I didn't ask you, do you know who, what God does? There is a difference between what God does and who God is. Do you know who God is? This morning in Sunday school class, we were with the young people. We were asking the question, do you know the Lord? That's not asking, are you saved? Though that could be an appropriate question. What we were asking is, do you know him? Several years ago, I was at a Bible conference, a victory conference. You're all familiar with it. A pastor was preaching there. And I don't remember which year it was, but it was within the last two years. But his message, the thrust of his message is, get them to Jesus. In fact, I think that was his title. And he, he I'm not going to say ranted and raved, but he was passionate about this, uh, this topic. Get them to Jesus. Get them to Jesus. If you have needs in your community, get them to Jesus. And I remember sitting here on the left side thinking, Dad, that makes a lot of theological sense. But what does that mean? I began to discover over the last two years, the reason I was confused is because I knew a lot about what God does, but I didn't know who God is. Do you know who God is this morning? See, that goes beyond just his miracles. That goes beyond just his attributes. That goes deep to the person. Isn't it amazing how many times we compliment people? Uh, we say, hey, good job. You, you ran that track real well. A good job, young man. You, you made a great tackle. That was a great free throw. Good job, son. You cleaned up your toys. And we can actually find ourselves complimenting people on based upon what they do and miss who they are. Are you familiar with, the, uh, with Luke 19.10? I think probably all of us would be. For the Son of Man is, say it with me, come to seek and to save that which was lost. What does that verse tell us? It tells us about something God does, but do you know that it also tells us something about who God is? When we look at that verse, we say, hey, the Son of Man's come to seek and to save. I'm very grateful that, and truly I am, because he, the Scripture is telling us that He can save you. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, if you're a visitor this morning, or maybe you've been here multiple times, but you've never put your trust in Jesus, what God does is He saves but you know that passage is telling us even more than what he does. It's telling us who he is. He's a seeking and saving God, which means 
Seeking and saving isn't just what he does, it's who he is. Take your Bible and go to Acts chapter 9 with me here this morning. Acts 9 is a familiar passage being the surprising conversion of Saul, later to be known as Paul. The reason I call it the surprising conversion is because if I was God, I wouldn't have saved him. He's killing my people. You're going against my church. Take the dude out. But that's not who God is. No, because he's a seeking God. You say, why is this important? Is this semantics? Are you just making a, 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 a point about language that really isn't that important? What's the difference between doing and being? <laughs> Let me put it this way. A story is told of Oswald Chambers. I don't know if you're familiar with the name Oswald Chambers. If you've ever read My Utmost for His Highest, that is uh, Oswald Chambers. He didn't, in fact, write that himself. His wife was the one that compiled that. But she had taken notes of all his preaching and his lectures, and she had compiled it. Oswald Chambers, I did not know much about him until just reading a biography about him recently, was an incredible, incredible man. Gifted in the arts, uh, music, and especially in art, drawing and painting. He, he wanted to pursue that. That was his life goal. And, and after pursuing that uh, for his early part of his years, God finally, in a very strong way, got a hold of his heart. And he surrendered to the call of God on his life at the age of 27. At age 27, God so began to radically change Oswald Chambers that he became known around England, Scotland, and in the Americas about uh, of what a great preacher he was. And, and uh, uh, later when World War I would break out, Oswald would uh, um, volunteer with the YMCA. And back, of course, back then the YMCA was a passionate Christian program. And so he surrendered, or yielded, what's what, not that, uh, applied basically with the YMCA. They took him over to Cairo, Egypt, and there he had a, a tent that he was responsible for, and, and he would bring soldiers in there, and he'd preach to them, teach to them, and minister to them. He would die at age 43, and so he only lived 16 years, and yet in those years, uh, he has, he's the most published art, uh, art writer of, uh, of Christian journals there. Uh, he was a greatly used man of God, but he had a unique view of who God is. Story is told there of Oswald Chambers. He's in Cairo. He and his wife went to a hospital to visit a lady who was sick. She's at her, it seems, deathbed. And, and they went to visit her. There's a lady that they had loved very deeply, had ministered to for a long time, knew her well. And after visiting her in the hospital, they returned home. And the biographer writes the story about how Oswald Chambers is sitting at home and he's shining his shoes. And his wife, Biddy, uh, quietly remarks from the kitchen sink, she says, I wonder what God will do. And Oswald responds, I don't care what God does. I care who God is. The biographer went on to write, Oswald's comment might seem callous or unfeeling, but that was not the case because Oswald did care for that lady very deeply. But what Oswald revealed was that sometimes what God does can be confusing, but who God is is never confusing. See, the truth is, some of us have, some of you in this room have gone through trials that you step back and say, Lord, I can't explain that. I don't know why you allowed that. Lord, that does not make sense to me. In my mind, in my thinking of what the future ought to look like, that doesn't fit. And many people taking that perspective, if all they know is what God does, but never knowing the very nature of God, their faith is hurt, they walk away from Christianity, and the very one who is leading, shaping, and directing their life, they actually resist because they get disillusioned. 
And we all are susceptible to that. And so it's very important for us here this morning to not just see what God does. We want to learn the very nature of God so that we can step back and say, Lord, I don't know why you did that. That doesn't make sense to me, but I do know that you make sense. So I'm going to rest in you. Pastor called me not long ago and said, I suppose you heard. He said, uh, my assistant pastor, the Lord called him away to another church. He said, I didn't see that coming. I didn't understand it. He said, it adds, uh, I said, does it bother you? He said, well, it certainly adds to the list of questions that I have for the Lord someday when I get to heaven, but it doesn't my, shake my faith in God. Because he understood sometimes what God does is confusing, but who God is, is never. Here's what I want us to look at here this morning. I want us to see an area of who God is, and that is he is a pursuing God. We looked at Luke 19.10. The scriptures tells us the Son of Man has come to seek. It's not just what he does. It's who he is. It's his very nature. It's everything about him. If you were to strip away and find out at the very core of Jesus, you would discover that God the Father, Jesus Christ, is a seeking God for both the sinner and the saint. Look with me in Acts chapter 9 here. We're going to look at this account very quickly. It's a familiar account of Saul, but I want us to look at it maybe with fresh eyes. Starting in verse 1, we're going to see here what kind of a man Saul was. The scripture says in verse 1, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way... Whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Stop right there. If you're familiar with the story, uh, you know what's going to happen. But I want us to just focus on those first couple of verses. Saul is a man who's not just angry at believers. He has political and religious sanction. He has every ability and legal right to go and find someone who serves Jesus to arrest them, beat them, take them to prison, and ultimately his goal is to have them executed. He just was there uh, consenting, standing there to view the death of Stephen. He is all for destruction of anything that names the name Jesus Christ. He's all for destruction of the person who bears the image of Christ. And if you were God, what would you do? With Saul. See, in the West here, we're not used to this kind of persecution. So we get up in arms. We say, man, that's not right. You shouldn't be persecuting Christianity like that. But in the East, it happens all the time, and Christians can't say a thing. It's just a way of life. So here, Saul has all legal ability. He's chasing down these believers, and yet God was chasing down Saul. Verse 3, and as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Can you imagine what that must have been like? That's the name he detests. That's the name he hates. That's the one he wants to destroy. His life is bent on killing that name. And that name is bent on rescuing him. Imagine what that must have done to his own soul. Jesus. And this is what Jesus says to him. Look with me there in verse 5. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and there shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. 
And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. If you're familiar, there's a man, Ananias, waiting for him. The Lord would go to Ananias and say, look, I'm sending Saul and Ananias would say, but Lord, you don't know who Saul is. We, we don't like Saul. We've heard what Saul wants to do to you, Lord. We've heard what Saul wants to do to us. And the Lord gives him his vision statement. Look with me in verse 15. But the Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for, thy, for my name's sake. In simplicity, Church body, I, this morning I want us to see that seeking, pursuing, initiating is not just what God does, it's who He is. He's seeking you. If you have not been saved this morning, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. You know what that means? He's the one that took the first step. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But God commended his love towards us in that while we were not seeking for him, in that while we were not uh, living a holy life, we were in sin, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, he initiated, he died for us. Boy, we understand it in salvation. Do you understand it in sanctification? First John tells us, oh, we love him because he first loved us. See, it is God's nature, it is his person to come after you. See, sometimes we've all, well, there's some of us that have grown up in a, in a home maybe where dad came after us and he came after us with a belt or he came after us with a rod and we maybe have the wrong view of that. The Lord does judge, he does punish, he does deal with his children as is necessary, but God is saying, I'm seeking you, and that's what he did for Saul. Now it's interesting, I, I find, I, I've passed over this so often that I did not realize what this verse is saying. In verse 5, the scripture tells us that God's speaking to Saul, says, I am Jesus, the one that you're persecuting, I'm not letting that bother me, I'm coming after you, I'm Jesus. It's hard, Saul, to kick against the pricks. You know what that indicates? That indicates God's been pursuing him for quite some time. What's, what's a prick? Uh, in that day, it would have been an ox goat. I'm sure you're all familiar with this, but if you're not, did you know that uh, cows, oxen, are incredibly dumb animals? I'm sure some of you know this. Uh, my grandfather and my father were both dairy farmers, and my, my grandfather did it for most of his life, and he told me he would often carry a 16-penny nail in his pocket uh, just to get cow's attention. If a cow was not paying attention, he's trying to get a cow to go a direction, he'd take that 16-penny nail and he'd jam it into the back flank of him, and the cow would just be like, oh... You talking to me? I mean, they're just cows are just not a very, they're just, they're repetitive animals, not very intelligent animals. And so sometimes, in fact, he told me, he said, I broke a two by four off the face of a cow one time just trying to get its attention. And the cow just kind of said, oh, which direction were you wanting me to go? That's how dumb they are. So the idea of an ox goat is it's a long pointed stick that you would take and you jam it into the back flanks of the animal trying to get its attention to say, hey, look, you're not, you're going that way and I want you to go this way. And the more you resist me, the harder I I prick, the harder I push, because I'm directing you, I'm trying to put you in a direction, that's where you're supposed to go. So this is what the scripture is saying. Saul, that's what I've been doing for you. I've been pursuing you. I've been coming after you. I'm trying to prod you. I, can, I, I wonder if maybe when Saul was standing there consenting to the death of Stephen, that he began to feel the pricks. As he's watching a man who did not die like normal men, 
watching a man who did not spew hatred, watching a man who did not die screaming. No, he watched a man there on his knees as the rocks begin to fall, looking up into heaven, crying out some of the exact same words that Jesus did. I wonder what it did in, in Saul's heart. And God's saying, Saul, I am pursuing you. Brothers and sisters, in simplicity, do you know that God is pursuing you? Think about the 12 disciples. You know, there was not a single disciple that came to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus of Nazareth, I've heard you're a new prophet on, in town. Uh, what do you think? Can I be your, uh, your apprentice, your, your intern? No, what did Jesus do? He went and found his disciples. He came to him and said, I want you to come follow me. I want you to come follow me. You think about when uh, after the crucifixion, when all the disciples have run from Jesus and some more vocally than others, Jesus says, I want to know where Thomas is. Thomas wasn't here. Okay, here, I'm going to show up again. Thomas, you, Thomas, come here. No, you're not going to be reprimanded. Thomas, I want you to look. I want you to see. Thomas, you said you wouldn't believe and I'm not going to cut my losses on unbelievers. No, I'm going to find you and I want to prove to you because Thomas, I know what kind of a man you're going to be. Are you familiar with what history tells us that Thomas did? Thomas would later go and die a martyr's death after leading scores of people to Jesus Christ. And if Jesus hadn't pursued him, I don't think that would have happened. What did he do for Peter? Peter's the most vocal of all the ones that left Jesus. If I was Jesus, I wouldn't trust Peter with anything. You think about it. Jesus trained his disciples for three and a half years. He gave himself to them for the purpose that when he leaves the earth, they take on his mission. In fact, he even told them everything that was going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to resurrect. And you guys are going to take on. I just want you guys to know it. And so he's trained them all. And then the day comes for the crucifixion and the, and the, uh, the, the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. And the disciples go, oh, we didn't know what was going on. And, and, and if I was Jesus, I'd say, like, you blew the test, man. I'm not trusting you with my dog, let alone the church. But you know what Jesus does? He goes to the seashore because he wants to find Peter. Peter, can I get out of the boat? Peter, I'm not going to make you uh, make the meal. I've, in fact, I've been the one that's created this, the uh, twilight dinner here. I've provided the meal and I've provided the conversation. I've provided the love and the forgiveness, the restoration and the recommissioning. Peter, I'm after you. Feed my sheep. Think about Jonah. God was pursuing Jonah. That's because it's who he is. Jonah there, when God gave him a call, a vision, a mission for his life, uh, he comes to Jonah and says, look, I want you to go down to preach to Nineveh. Jonah, there's a revival that's coming and I want to use you. I would like to think if the Lord told me that, that I'd go uh, and willingly, hey, I want to be a part of a revival. But in Jonah's case... He wasn't willing, so he takes off running. Now, if I was God, you know what I would do? Fine, I'll pick another prophet. I've got plenty of other ones. He says, no, I'm not going to cut my losses. I don't do that to my children. Jonah, I'm going to find you, and I'm going to send a storm and a fish. Lord, it feels like you're trying to kill me. No, actually, I'm trying to pursue you, and sometimes it just seems like I'm trying to kill you. Have you felt like the Lord's been trying to kill you, and you start blaming him? It's because you don't know who he is. Actually, he's probably pursuing you. I don't know how many times things have happened. My gut reaction is to say, I don't need this. This isn't the right time. And the Lord is saying, no, actually this is because I'm pursuing you. All, in fact, if you were to look all through Scripture, you are going to find that Jesus over and over again gives illustrations, examples, and flat out just spells it out in the Scripture saying, I am coming after you. Psalm 139 says, whither shall I go from your spirit? 
Or whither shall I go from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. I can't get away from you. You're there. Think about Luke 15, a trilogy of parables. We will look at one of these on Wednesday night. A trilogy of parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. And what do all three parables teach? The shepherd and the woman and the father, they don't cut their losses. They say, I'm going to set aside the 99. I'm going to set aside the change. I'm going to set aside the good son. And I am going to go after the one that ran away. I'm going to go after the one that was lost. Why? Because seeking is who I am. Brothers and sisters, do you know Jesus is seeking you? See, sometimes for us, we find ourselves in our thinking, you know, like, uh, like God here, I'm going to use Brother Autry here, like God is this Brother Autry sitting here, the big, big daddy who's just saying, okay, whenever you have time and come back to me, you can. And when you come back to me, we'll, we'll have a conversation about it. But we view him as the person who's distant from us, not the one that he's actually seeking after us. We view him as the one sitting there in his armchair saying, yeah, it's about time you came back. Can I say, told you so? Should have listened to me the first time. That's not who God is. God is seeking. What does is, what is the, the, the parable of the prodigal son tell us? That the father is sitting there looking, looking, crest the hill, I'm gone. Because I want to find him. Do you find yourself believing or feeling that you have to convince God to come after you? As I was studying for this message, I began to find myself thinking, but this can't be completely true because I know passages in Scripture that, that tell me that I'm supposed to want to do the seeking. Doesn't Matthew 7 tell me I'm supposed to ask, I'm supposed to seek, and I'm supposed to knock? Doesn't James uh, tell me, James chapter 4, doesn't it tell me that I'm supposed to be one that draws nigh and then he will draw nigh? Boy, when I look at the Scripture, it certainly seems like there's conflicting opinions here because it seems like sometimes he seeks me and then other times I have to seek him to get him, almost like he's a of what's going on. And I began to look at Matthew chapter 7. You're, you're familiar with it. Ask, he says, and you, you'll receive. Seek, you'll find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. And I thought, yeah, that, that's my responsibility until I realized that's God initiating. Think about it this way. No one here in our right mind, no mortal man would think on his own to say, hey God, uh, big God up there, I know we haven't talked, and I don't really know you know me or not, but hey, what do you think if we become pen pals? Would that be fine? Have we talked for a little while? Hey, if I asked you to do something, think you could do it? No man would think like that. In fact, we, like most religions, think, oh, wait, he's too big, he's too holy, we, 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 we can't get close to him. You know the glory of Christianity is he says, I am a fall on your face holy kind of a God, but I'm also your friend and I'm telling you, ask. Seek me. Hey, hey, if you knock, I'm going to open it. See, that's God actually coming to you and I saying, my child, I have something for you. If you would just ask. And in fact, I'm seeking through the entire earth trying to find someone that I can show myself powerful on their behalf. I've got all this power and all this wealth bound up. I'm just trying to find someone. So guess what? If you ask, I'll do it. Hey, listen, seek me. Seek me. Amen. See, it's not about us going, so in, hey, uh, hey, God. It's about you turning around and realizing he's right there the entire time. Nathan, can I ask you to come up here for just a second? I, 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 I prepped. I think you knew this. Did you know I was going to use you? Okay, good. I, I told Luke I was going to use him or, or that Nate, I was going to use Nathan. Okay. Well-meaning preachers sometimes communicate this picture 
like you have to convince God to forgive you, like you have to retrace all of your steps and get back to God. And, and, I, and I understand what some of those men are trying to say, but they use phrases that can sometimes be confusing. See, here, here's how it's sometimes communicated, and here's how we sometimes believe it. So I want you to come over here with me. Nathan, here, stand right here. Nathan is going to represent us as believers, and I'm going to represent God. In our natural course of life, if we've not been walking with the Lord, we'll find ourselves making decisions of disobedience, and we fall into sin. We take a step into sin. So in that moment, Nathan, I want you to turn like this, turn away, and take one step away from me. We didn't have our time with the Lord this morning, and after three days of not having our time with the Lord uh, each day, we find ourselves frustrated with our children, and there's disconnect between us and the Lord, there's disconnect between our spouse, there's disconnect between our children. And we're feeling empty, so at that point, we go and turn on the television and veg out for three hours. Okay, Nathan, take another step. And we finish that television viewing, we feel that sickening feeling in our stomach, like, oh, I shouldn't have gone there, I knew I shouldn't have gone there, but we're not yet willing to humble ourselves or maybe we've got a warped view of who God is and so therefore we go to bed angry and our wife tries to talk with us and we shut her down and we take another step farther away and the next morning we're feeling so guilty and so ugly we try to get into the word and it seems like nothing and so we throw the word down kick the cat yell at the kids and leave and head to work and we take another step away and if you do this for too long, you're going to find yourself at work being tempted with the computer and maybe you take, uh, take a look at some pornography and now you feel really wicked and so you take another step away. And, and at this point, the distance between you and God seems to be so far. And some well-meaning preachers have said, well, if you're distant from God, who moved? Now, I'm not trying to be unkind because I understand what those men are trying to say but I don't think that's an accurate picture. Come on back here, Nathan. See, when I read the scriptures and I look at the example of who God is, I think this is what happens. We find ourselves not having our devotions for three days, getting frustrated with our children, and so we turn and take a step away from Jesus. Go ahead, Nathan. And then Jesus Amen. takes a step behind us. Amen. And then we're feeling miserable and empty, and so we veg out on the television because it's the only thing we can think to do when you take a step away from Jesus. He says, I'm right here. We get mad at our wife, get mad at our children. We watch a, a viewing of pornography and we take another step away from Jesus and it feels like we're so far from God and yet God is not far from you. Amen. May I say this very straightforward. If, if you came in here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you are known to be away from God, and that is true because you, there is distance between you and God from your perspective, but not from his. He's right behind you. He's been pursuing you. He's been seeking you. He brought you here because he wants to save you. If right now you are not right with God and you feel like there must be so much distance, all the scripture is telling us to do is turn, yield, humble, repent. That's all a one action word. All that means is you go from oriented like this, feeling so far from God to turning. And you know what you find? I've been here all along. Because what I do is I seek after my children. I look for them. And I'm ready to forgive. Now, does that mean that there's not going to be repercussions? Does that mean that there's not going to be time that I'm going to have to make things right and, and retrace my steps in, in some sense? Absolutely. But you do it with somebody. 
See, look, con- confession, revival, uh, uh, returning to the Lord is not an alone journey. Because if you would but humble yourselves in turn, you would find the pursuing one is right there. That's because that's who he is. It's what he does, but it's who he is. He's seeking you. See, I think too many of us find ourselves thinking that there's so much distance and we actually dive deeper into sin because we assume it's going to take me so long to get right with God. It's going to take me so long to retrace my steps. I don't have time for that. I I, I don't know if he'll accept me. It might take too long. And then finally, after feeling so convicted, we do this. Oh, you know what? Okay, if I could just do three days maybe a week, if I could do a week of consistent devotions, and then if I could just, I'll go out on Saturday, and if I could just prove that I really mean it this time, maybe then he'll take me back. That's not who your God is. So look, you can't do a week of consistent devotions by yourself anyway, so why try? Just humble yourself, and I'll be right there, because that's who I am. I seek my children. And I'll teach you. I'll show you. And you can go down. Brothers and sisters, have you found yourself distant from the Lord recently, maybe even now? Do you find yourself fearful to return to Him? Do you find yourself worried about the time it will take? Do you find yourself fearful of being totally transparent with Him? See, what the Lord is asking for, what the Lord is looking for, and James spells it out very clearly, he's saying, look, I want to pour grace on you, and all I want you to do is just humble yourself. You know what the humbling is? It would be where Nathan is oriented away from God, and all he has to do is but turn. And when you turn, God says, I pour grace, and I'm ready to forgive. Would you be willing to humble yourself? Do you know Jesus that well? I read a book recently that really uh, affected my thinking. It's called Visions of the Deep. And a lady was, the author was talking about a relationship with Jesus that really inspired me because I thought, man, I don't know Jesus like she does. And one of the questions she posed in the book is, have you ever been brutally transparent with Jesus? I'm saying the kind of transparency that you won't be with your wife. The, the kind of transparency that you only do with yourself. And you almost think think that maybe he doesn't know about this, so I'll just keep it under wraps. Have you ever just sat down with Jesus when you feel that you're far from God and say, okay, Lord, this is who I am. Scars, uh, sags, bags, everything. This is is who I am. I don't have to convince you of who I am. I don't have to let you. I mean, this this is just me. And a pursuing, seeking God is right there to take it all. Have you ever been that brutally transparent with him, it might actually free you. You know the most miserable way of living is trying to be something you're not. I like to play basketball, but I cannot dunk. (laughs) And it would be incredibly frustrating if we went out on one of the courts around here with some of the guys and I really tried to dunk. In fact, I psyched myself up. I think I can dunk. You know how frustrated I would get because every time I would jump, I would fall far short of dunking. The best thing I could do is just get honest and say, okay, I can't dunk, and I'm never going to dunk. I, look at me, I'm white. I can't dunk. That's just who I am. That's incredibly freeing. Because I can just be honest. I don't have to pretend anything any longer. You know what Jesus is looking for us to do? To just turn to the seeking one. And let's just be honest. Lord, I have needs. I am weak. 
I'm empty. And the Lord says, yeah, I already knew that. I was just waiting for you to humble yourself. And the seeking one who is there on my doorstep, who is at my heels, the seeking one who's been coming after me, the seeking one who's been prodding, the seeking one who has been leading me, leading me to those positions, those understandings, will take and accept and hold all of that transparency in a very safe and loving way. It's who your God is. Men, you don't need weeks and months of victory in order to prove something to God. Ladies, you don't need weeks and months of victory to make God love you more. He's the one that's been initiating. He's the one that's been seeking. Would you just humble yourself? A.W. Tozer said, the impulse to pursue God originates with God. But the outworking of that impulse is our falling hard after him and all the time we are pursuing, we are already in his hand. See, it's stepping back and having a different perspective of who God is. Does God command me to seek him? He does. In fact, he invites me to. He says, if you seek me, you'll be found. He's the one that's calling. He's the one that's initiating. Would we be willing to set aside the lies that we've believed, the misconceptions that we believe? Would we be humble? In fact, I believe, and I'll close with this, I believe many people are kept out of heaven, kept out of eternity, I should put it this way, that salvation, because of pride, because they don't really want to let themselves be forgiven. And how many of us have kept ourselves out of the presence of Jesus Christ because we want to, in our own strength, convince the Lord that we're worth seeking after. We want to convince the Lord uh, that, that we can get ourselves back up and, and, and sit back on our horse. We want to convince the Lord we can retrace our steps. And the Lord is saying, I don't want you to try to do any of that. You're going to fail at all of that. I want you to just turn and realize I've been there all the time because I am a seeking God. Can I ask you all this morning to bow your heads and close your eyes with me?